0: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. In this programme, we're tackling boredom head on. Danish philosopher Kierkegaard suggested the gods created humanity out of boredom, and the poet Charles Baudelaire foresaw its French equivalent ennui, one day swallowing the whole earth up in an immense yawn. The word boredom to describe a state we owe to Charles Dickens. In Bleak House in 1853, he referred to Lady Dedlock's chronic malady of boredom. Perhaps the clue was in her name. The description of being bored or finding something boring dates back to the century before that. But open up the Old Testament and you'll find something that sounds remarkably like acute boredom. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve... Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. But when we're bored, meaninglessness coexists with a longing for meaning. It's not mere apathy, which is a lack of interest coupled with a low motivation to do anything about it. Boredom is restless. Psychologist Adam Phillips calls it that state of suspended anticipation in which things are started and nothing begins the mood of diffuse restlessness which contains that most absurd and paradoxical wish, the wish for a desire, In other words, we want something from our world that it cannot immediately provide. And that's where psychology may come to the rescue. Not to eliminate boredom entirely. As you'll hear, boredom is trying to tell us something that's worth heeding. But to begin to work out What to make of its message, how to respond to it in a way that won't just send us off to watch another box set, or eat another half litre of ice cream, or do both at once. Out of My Skull is a new book on the psychology of boredom by James Dankert and John D. Eastwood. James, who's my guest in this programme, is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Waterloo and a cognitive neuroscientist. James's co author, John, is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at York University and a clinical psychologist. Keep listening to hear how we know that animals also experience boredom, how boredom may correlate with ideological inclination, and how many people will willingly give themselves an electric shock to alleviate boredom. I spoke to James late last year, and our conversation began with a tweet. I wanted to start with a tweet, James, that I saw that you put out last month. You'd been watching a Zoom presentation. I think it was an academic maybe presenting their work, and you said you were watching it on mute and you had your bass guitar for I think you said down moments or something. And I thought, this sounds like a man who's who's got a fear of being bored, who doesn't want to allow himself to to find himself in a, a situation where he might be bored. Am I am I right? <laughs>
1: I'm not afraid of being bored. I am a person who experiences it more than I'd like to admit, more than I'd like, period. Um, so I do tend to to want to have things that I can occupy myself with, particularly my hands, you know, so I'm often tapping on the, the desk or, you know, doing, doing things. And I, I, one of the things that that says, I think, about me and about boredom is that when we're bored, there's a kind of feeling of unspent energy. And for me, one of the ways to get that unspent energy out is to sort of tap my feet or tap my hands on my, on my knees when I'm sitting. Um, and if I, if I have the luxury of, a, of being on mute and having my video muted, then I can just pick up a guitar and play while I'm not having to pay so much attention.
0: I can see that you're in a room surrounded by musical instruments and recording equipment. Is that sort of part of the dynamic of your, you know, if you're working from home or if you're, if you're working on some academic problem that you give yourself sort of permission to, to go and have 10 minutes on the improvising or something?
1: <laughs> so some of the issues, you can't quite see there's a drum kit in the background. And that's my son's. and and the microphone we bought recently to help record lectures for work, but there's also sort of really bought for my son who records his own rap music. I do give myself permission to do those kinds of things, whether or not it's playing around on the guitar, which is really the only, you know, I have a bass, but guitar is my instrument. Whether or not it's that or or some other kind of activity, I do give myself permission to sort of have those short breaks. And it's, I think, even more important during the pandemic. So this is my basement at the moment. This is a sort of a, An all purpose room. It has our computer. It has my son's drum kit. It has a spare bed in it just on on the other side. It's quite a long sort of room, but it's kind of an all purpose room in the house. I'm sick of it. (laughs) You know, I've spent too much time. I come down here and close the door to separate myself from the rest of the family so that I can work. But I, you know, I'm tired of it. And the funny thing about that is that when I think of what I'm missing at work, my office at work is smaller. The walls are these ugly brown cinder blocks which are not pleasant to look at and yet I think I miss going into work because whenever you went into work you weren't there 24 hours a day right it wasn't you know it wasn't your home it was a separate sort of physical structure and when you know in normal times the sort of permission I I don't have a guitar in my office or anything like that but the permission I had there to, that I gave myself was that, you know, you'd get up and you'd walk somewhere to get the coffee or there's a, a ring road in our university. You could walk the ring road for a bit of exercise. And, you, you know, it's just the freedom to do those kinds of things that we don't have anymore uh, is something that I miss a lot. And, and yes, there is, a, there is an element in my research on boredom of physician heal thyself.
0: One of the things which comes out of the book is that boredom is comparatively understudied compared to other mental states it seems as though there's, we're still at quite an early stage of understanding it, how it interacts with other um, sort of mental phenomena and thing, things in, that we interact with in our environment. So I wanted to ask you, I guess, a two-part question. Why do you think it is relatively neglected or has been until quite recently, and what was it about it that attracted you to it?
1: You're right that until relatively recently it's been understudied and I think there's a lot of great work coming out, some of it in the UK some of it in China, actually, and so lots of different places now are starting to pay attention to boredom. So why was it the poor cousin to other emotions for so long? I think we trivialize it. I think we treat boredom as, I got this great quote from a a journalist many years ago that she treated boredom as the part of the furniture of life. It's sort of, you know, it's there, sometimes you experience it, but you don't sort of give it much credit for being important or relevant. And you just move on from that uncomfortable feeling and and get things done. And I think for many of us, that's true, that whenever we experience the state of boredom, we can quickly get out of it. We can find a way to sort of move past it. And perhaps because of that, it's been relatively neglected. Why did I get into researching boredom? There are two main reasons. One, I already mentioned to you that, you know, I do experience it as a, as a, fairly common experience and I don't like it. It's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, and I'd rather not experience it. And so uh, perhaps pretty naively, I thought that by understanding it, I might be able to overcome it. And I now think that understanding is always good and, and, and useful to me, but I don't think that there's any point in trying to outrun boredom. It serves a purpose. And so I think I'm more comfortable with it than I was maybe two decades ago. The other reason why I started studying it. Is that I trained in Australia as a clinical neuropsychologist. And I didn't work in that capacity for very long, but I worked for an agency that saw a number of people who'd had traumatic brain injuries from various kinds of things like car crashes, bar fights. So they typically were young men that had experienced these, these traumatic head injuries. And because of a personal association with that, my older brother had suffered a similar traumatic brain injury. Um, And when he was recovering from his brain injury, well and truly before I was qualified um, as a neuropsychologist, he reported feeling boredom and he was feeling boredom for things that he used to love, right? So it was almost like for him, a threshold had been reset for him to enjoy things in life again. They needed to have some higher intensity than they did before the injury. So then when I came to work as a neuropsychologist, I would ask each of these young men, you know, do you feel more bored after your brain injury? and to a number they said yes but they didn't just say yes they sort of leapt out of their chairs it was someone has you know recognized something that's really important to their lived experience and and no one had asked them about it before and what that said to me is that yeah this is important to them this is a challenge for them to reestablish and reengage with their lives because things just don't feel as good as they used to those are the two main reasons that got me into it to try and understand uh, why I experience it personally, and then what what's going on in the brains of people who've suffered from traumatic brain injuries that, that makes this a challenge for them?
0: And that sort of um, touches on something else which I learned from the book, which is that there's been more attention paid to boredom as a state, as a situation than as a predisposition, sort of looking at what factors might predispose someone to a greater degree of boredom, because I think we all know sort of anecdotally that different people well experience it in different ways, in different situations and to different degrees. So what you were saying there sort of points in, in that direction, doesn't it? Thinking about it, what might predispose it, people to it, but also, I guess, what is boredom trying to tell us? Because it's not a, it's not a sort of point, you, know, and you compare it in the book to pain, uh, and which, which struck me as a, as a good uh, analogy.
1: The pain analogy comes from a good friend of mine, Andreas Alpadoru, who does—he's a philosopher at the University of Louisville, and Andreas does a bit of work on boredom as well. Um, has his own book out called *Propelled*, which makes the case that boredom, frustration, and anticipation are all these feeling states that propel us forward. They push us into motion, right? And that's the the, the sort of functional case that you would make for boredom as well—that when we're bored the signal is telling us that we're not effectively engaged with the world around us right now. And so we need to explore for other options to engage and we need to launch into those. That gives the state its function. It's a call to action. And that's where the pain analogy comes into. The function of pain is not to cause us to feel hurt, but to get us into action to deal with whatever caused the pain in the first place. So the state has that function of a call to action. And then the, the thing that, I find very interesting, and most of my research focuses on, for that individual trait, they're experiencing a kind of conundrum. They acutely are aware of that signal saying, you need to do something different now. And yet, for whatever reason, they fail to launch into something that might work. And that sort of tension, I think, is a a really interesting one in trying to understand what are the factors that make it hard for some people to respond to that call to action.
0: One of the really interesting nuggets of information I picked up from the book was that the term the word boredom in English dates only from the time of Dickens so you know the sort of mid-Victorian period it would however be completely erroneous to think of boredom as purely a an industrial or even a post-industrial phenomenon you know you you say you can find traces of it in the literature you know in the ancient world but going even further back than that if we've evolved as creatures who experience this feeling state, what would be the evolutionary reason for for such a state?
1: There's one um, way of of, of sort of characterising boredom that makes that um, easier to make sense of, and it comes actually from behavioural economics. So they would talk about opportunity costs. And that is that anything that you do, any activity that you do comes with some amount of cost. That is that the cost of not doing other things, right? So there are easy circumstances you, you can describe. You know, While I'm doing my taxes, there's high opportunity costs because I could be doing anything more pleasurable than that, right? Yeah. Um, but what boredom might signal is that those opportunity costs are indeed rising, right? So whatever it is that you're doing right now, boredom signals that you're not engaged with that thing. And so there ought to be other things that you might, might want to do. So it's that push, not just a call to action, but a push to explore, to explore your world for better options. Um, What's the evolutionary function of that? Well, the example I like to to come back to is foraging, right? So I don't know if you've ever done this yourself, but if you go to one of those pick your own berries farms and you're going to pick blueberries, you don't stand in front of a single blueberry bush and denude it of all of the berries. This is just not what you do. And it turns out it's not what animals do either you pick the ripest juiciest ones that you can see you expend some amount of effort but you know as soon as it looks like that it, it's hard to get any more berries from that bush or there doesn't look like there's ones that are quite so ripe or quite so large then you move on and you explore for a better berry bush somewhere around the corner right boredom can be that kind of signal that says the thing you're doing now is not satisfying a need you have and so you need to explore now for some other kinds of options and that need to balance we sort of talk in in the foraging world you'd talk about the balance between exploitation so exploiting the resources of the berry bush in front of you and exploration sort of exploring for better resources somewhere else in the animal world there are many 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 circumstances in which you have to balance those two drives and i think sometimes as humans we like to we like to think of ourselves as beyond some of those basic drives and we're not we 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 have those those same needs. One of the things I think that John and I try and point out in the book is that one of our needs is that sort of, we don't use this term, and John might be unhappy with me using it, but sort of cognitive <laughs> fulfillment in some way, right? You You have these resources in your brain and it feels good to deploy those resources in a purposeful way. And so when you're bored, it's sort of saying you're not doing that. You're not being an effective agent. You're not deploying your resources well. So we look for that kind of cognitive fulfillment. And so when you, if you think about that, the circumstance of of sort of starting off to pick berries from the bush is an, an optimal cognitive fulfillment. You know, you're getting the resources that you want. You're getting the engagement that you want, and it feels good. But then as that bush starts to dry up, as your resources are not being deployed very well, Then you start to think, well, this is a little bit dull, this is a little bit boring, I've got to go and do something else. There's some great work in the animal world trying to look at boredom in animals because one of the things I think that sceptics will say is, you know, how do you know if an animal's bored, right? You can't just ask them. My first sort of response to that is anybody who's ever owned a dog knows when their animal's bored. It usually ends up in a dead shoe somewhere in in your house, right? Um, But the, the study that I love the most comes from Rebecca Meager and Georgia Mason, and they did this work in mink. So they had the mink housed in some boring cages and some mink housed in some really interesting cages. And then after two weeks, they just gave both groups of animals various things to interact with. And what they found is that the animals that had spent two weeks in a boring cage were sort of indiscriminate. They went and interacted with anything they could get their hands on, even if it was something the animal would normally avoid, like the smell of a predator. And then the other thing they showed is that the animals that have been in the boring cages over ate treats at the end of the experiment. Even though they'd been well-fed, they sort of gorged themselves on whatever the equivalent of candy is for mink. And we see that in humans too. So I I love that study. It it, it was really well-designed, and it really shows that, you know, the animals, if they were depressed, they probably wouldn't, you know, approach anything, and that's not what happened. They were bored, they wanted stimulation, they wanted engagement, and they approached everything pretty equally
0: well the the study that i aligned that with as i was reading the book was the one i think done in the 1950s where participants were put in a an environment which was kind of devoid of all stimulus you know they were really completely left to their own devices apart from the possibility of administering an electric shock to themselves. Can you say what, what then happened when they were left in that denuded environment?
1: So, so that one actually comes from Timothy Wilson's group and they published that in, in actually much later than, than, you, than you thought, 2014 that came out. It was a bit of a controversial paper but a really interesting one. So they had people sit in a room for 15 minutes with nothing but their thoughts. And one of the things I think is controversial about it is that the claim that comes out afterwards is that everybody hated that 15 minutes and they, they couldn't wait to get out of there. That's not true. So about one third of the people said it was quite pleasant. They, you know, sat there, had some time. I mean, we don't often give ourselves time to actually just think. And so for some of us, that's quite pleasant. About another one third were ambivalent, and then another third found it boring and and hated it. And then the key experiment that they did at the end of their series was they said, okay, you've got to be in a room on your own with nothing but your thoughts, or you can self-administer an electric shock. Now, the key things to this is that People had experienced the shock before the 15 minutes started, so they knew what it was like, and they had said, you know what, this is uncomfortable, and I will pay money never to have that again. They knew what it felt like, and they had claimed that they would pay to avoid it in the future, and yet most people in that experiment self-administered an electric shock during that 15 minutes. Men did so more than women, but women still did it. And one guy did it 196 times in 15 minutes, which is just kind of crazy. This is now, you can't explain that kind of behavior in terms of curiosity, right? After the fifth shock, I think your curiosity should be satisfied. (laughs) Um, And this again gets back to the opportunity costs in some sense, right? So for those individuals administering shocks, they're feeling like sitting there with just their thoughts is not rewarding enough. And they need to try and do something else, some other sort of stimulation. Sometime after the book was published, a graduate student of mine, Andrew Strzok and some colleagues, we published a paper that sort of followed up on that. So we had people in a room with nothing but their thoughts, which is a replication of the Wilson study. But then we had another group that was in a room with nothing but their thoughts, but on a desk nearby was a half-finished jigsaw puzzle, a half-finished Lego that I stole from my son, a browser that was open so that they could look search the internet if they wanted, and a few other things. And what we told the people in that room is, You can look, but you can't touch. And the idea here is that in both rooms, people were supposed to sit still for 15 minutes with nothing but their thoughts. But in one of the rooms, there was a high opportunity cost, lots of things that they feel like they're right in front of their face that they could do. And then we just asked them to rate their experience at the end of it. And the people in the room with things that they could have done, had we let them, rated the experience to be more boring. And that's, I think, a really um, nice sort of demonstration that this opportunity costs theory um, really does account for boredom quite well.
0: So when we're in a state of boredom, we feel restless, we feel uncomfortable, we feel motivated to, to, to or we, you know, we want to be doing something. So there's, you know, a positive way to look at boredom is that it's a goad, it's a prompt, it's a stimulus to do something, take some action to get out of this state. The problem, I guess, is, you know, moving on from the hunter-gatherer example that you gave, you know, in our earlier evolutionary history, is that the response that we can come up with can be maladaptive, can't it? And that's where boredom produces problems in the modern world, because you talk about all the sort of addictive behaviors or the risky behaviors or the harmful behaviors. So boredom in itself is not intrinsically good or bad, but it can be a prompt and we can respond to that prompt in ways which can be good or bad for us.
1: Absolutely. So as you point out, there's a long list of things that are associated with being boredom prone. So that individual propensity to experience boredom more frequently and more intensely than most. And what those challenges, what those negative sort of maladaptive behaviors represent is a kind of short-term solution to the feeling state of boredom that doesn't work in the long term so we know for example that people who uh, suffer from problem gambling also report that they they gamble because they're a bit bored and that while they're sitting at a slot machine they're occupied they're doing something and that they're not they're not bored but ultimately that can be you know quite problematic for the individual a lot of those things too are about sort of Allowing yourself to be passively filled from the outside rather than choosing to actively act on the world. Um, And so there's some really interesting work coming out of um, um, John Alhai's group in the University of Toledo. And this is also some work that's coming out of um, some of the Chinese research groups, looking at our relationship to our phones and to social media. And in their terms, they talk about problematic smartphone use. And what they mean by that is that people who Uh, feel anxious when they don't have their phone with them. People who who um, ramp up the amount of time they spend on their phone over time. Both of those things are classic descriptions of addictive behaviors, right? That we keep needing more and more stimulation and we feel anxious when we don't have that stimulation. And what they've shown is that being prone to boredom is one of the sort of drivers of that kind of problematic relationship with our phones and our, our social media. And again, it's that kind of, you know, you're doing something, you're sc- doom scrolling, I guess, but you're scrolling through your social media or you're, sc- you're looking through Instagram or whatever it is that you're doing, but it's pretty passive. You're letting the thing in the phone, you're letting the, the social media sort of fill you up. Um, and boredom is signaling that you need more than that. You need to be demonstrating that you are the effective agent here. You're the person who's making the choices, that your behaviors, your goals spring from your desires. And so when you're not satisfying that need, ultimately, you just occupy your time and at the end of it, you're still left with facing boredom again. At some point, you put your phone down, you get off social media, boredom is still there waiting for you because you haven't made that active choice to sort of pursue goals that you decided on. And I think that's why those things are, are ultimately maladaptive because it's important to you know when I, I don't want to be um, hyperbolic about any of these kinds of things. So in John uh work, I think it's about four percent of people that might show these sort of problematic relations to to their smartphone. It's not a huge number, and and the other reason why I don't want to be hyperbolic is there's nothing wrong with every once in a while just playing a mindless game like Candy Crush for a while. In my era, it was it was sort of Tetris or Solitaire or something like that, right? We can't always be on. We can't always be madly pursuing goals. We need these sort of refractory periods. We need these rests. And, and and I think that it's okay to, you know, binge watch something on Netflix or play some mindless game on your phone. The problem is when you get out of balance with that kind of engagement, that passive engagement, you know, and you're not doing the more active engagement, that, that's when it becomes problematic.
0: But even even those of us who wouldn't sort of fall into the – Problematic addiction category would probably say when we're doing it, you know, you may be watching a YouTube video and you see the next one line up and you think, oh, I'll just watch one more. Or you're on Twitter and you're scrolling and you're following links and you know that it's not really satisfactory. You know you could be doing something better. Why do, with that knowledge and with that sort of feeling of dissatisfaction, why do we still find it pretty hard to break away from it and actually then? Plunge into what we what we probably know in our hearts would give us more satisfaction, more sense of agency, more sense of achievement. What, what makes this so hard? If I come
1: back to the opportunity costs, people actually develop that model not to talk about boredom. They develop that model to talk about effort, right? So how is it that we regulate effort and can we explain the sensation, the feeling of, of effort? And one idea on uh, this comes from Kurzban and colleagues, but one idea is that when opportunity costs are rising, we code that as things like boredom, but also a rise in effort, right? This is starting to feel like it's taking too much effort. I want to do something that doesn't take so much effort. I think there's a lot more work to be done to try and understand effort regulation, but I think that's one of the things that comes back to answer your question. We've got some data that we haven't yet published or on the cusp of sort of publishing where people who are highly boredom prone are just less willing to exert effort. Uh, if you just ask them prospectively, how willing are you to do A or B? they are less willing to do tasks than people who are low-boredom-prone. And we also did what's known as an effort-discounting task where on a trial-by-trial basis, you can choose either an easy or a hard task. And the highly boredom-prone people tend to – or actually when you're in a state of boredom, you tend to choose the easy task. That one more YouTube video, that continuing to scroll through Twitter, is just easier, right? It's it's a simpler thing for us to do. It takes very little effort. And – uh, there's another sort of layer on that that is sort of problematic as you were describing um, that situation it is easier and yet we have this sort of pang of guilt about it in the back of your mind that you sort of think oh, I really shouldn't but bang you hit the, the play button anyway and then that can spiral and feel you continue to feel worse because you're you're now not only are you not being effective and pursuing goals, but you're also feeling guilty about it. So I think, it, I think we go to those things just because they're low effort.
0: No, I don't mean this question at all flippantly, because I know 2020 has been a terrible year in many ways for many people. But if you think about the things that characterize boredom, there you know, as you say, loss of agency, loss of self determination, loss of autonomy, feelings of increased isolation, non engagement, those are all things which have been hugely magnified this year for lots and lots of people. You know, sometimes for, for months on end. It must therefore offer lots of opportunity for someone who is interested in understanding how it works to. You know, collect more data and, and interrogate the phenomenon uh, more thoroughly.
1: Yeah, so we have done a little bit of that. It's it, it, when you describe it like that, it starts to make me feel a little bit
0: opportunistic. You know? <laughs> well, and yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't want to come across like that, but nonetheless, it is such is such a you know astonishing set of circumstances. Uh,
1: it, it, and it is true, and, and it is opportunistic. So there's a range of different studies not just um, coming out from our lab, there's a um, Vanya Wolf in in, uh, Germany and and her colleagues in Switzerland have published some work on this. There are, again, uh, studies coming out of China where people are absolutely asking, what's the experience of boredom during the pandemic? How is this having an influence, particularly on things like learning environments as our kids are sort of um, having to learn online and not having the same social interactions and this kind of thing? And the stories aren't good. Right. And as you point out, I mean, one of the first ones that came out of Italy when Italy was in its first wave, which was pretty, pretty bad, they asked people, you know, what is, what's the worst thing about social isolation? And the number one response was loss of freedom. And the number two response was boredom. And I have no trouble believing that boredom was number two because of number, the, the first uh, thing, you know, because of that loss of freedom. We've done some work recently where we, we sort of, we were interested in this notion of opportunity costs again. So we asked, a, we had um a little over 900 people that we asked to fill out some questionnaires. This was towards the end of April, start of May. So it was in that first wave. And I think we're on the cusp now of starting to collect some data in the in what we will call the second wave, I guess. But we asked a range of different things because we wondered whether or not, you know, if you lived in a circumstance where there were lots of opportunities for things to engage in before the pandemic, maybe your experience will be a lot worse than someone who lived in a, a circumstance where there were few opportunities. And that can split in range of different ways. Urban, rural could split based on socioeconomic status. So we asked a range of questions like that. We asked questions about household size and makeup, both in terms of number of people and, and square footage. You know, maybe if you've got a slightly larger house, you can uh, avoid being bored by the, the same four walls and the same four people. And there's a lot in that data set. We've published one paper from it at the moment, but we're sort of mining it for a lot more. So the paper that we published so far, first of all, shows that people who are high in boredom proneness and low in self-control, and this is a relationship that we've known for a long time exists, that people with low self-control tend to be more boredom prone. Uh, Those individuals broke the rules of social distancing at a higher rate than others. And so this is an important thing to be aware of in terms of just public health policy. The, the $64,000 question then becomes, well, how, do you, how should we deal with that? The best answer I can come up with at the moment is that we've probably been spending a lot of time telling people what they can't do. And for the highly boredom-prone, that constraint on your autonomy, that constraint on your sense of agency is really difficult to live with and so might push them more towards these kinds of rule breaks. So we might want to change our messaging to talk to people about what they can do. It's just become kind of particularly poignant, I guess, as we're sort of two and a half, three weeks away from Christmas, right? People are focusing on what they're losing. They're focusing on, I can't do what I would normally do for Christmas. I can't see family in the same way. I can't engage the same traditions. And I feel that just as much as anybody else does, but I don't think that focusing on it is particularly helpful. So we're in the process in our small family unit we're trying to figure out what we can do what what kind of interactions might we be able to do safely but that's looking like it's going to be fewer and fewer things but then I'm going to try and just say okay well that we can't do the traditions let's just do completely crazy things that don't actually don't actually fit with christmas and 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 just engage something else that is engaging that is fun that is that that we like doing but focus on what we can do rather than what we're losing, because I think it's just a healthier way to, to approach it. To backtrack and talk more about you know, boredom in the pandemic at the moment, I think there's good evidence from a range of different labs that th- there is a heightened experience of boredom. One of the things I think is to circle back right to what you asked at the start why has this not been studied much? And, and I suggest that because people think it's trivial. They don't think it's trivial anymore because I think that for people who didn't really experience it much on a day-to-day basis, now they know, right? Now they experience it and they experience the discomfort and the restlessness and the constraint. And the, so, you know, it's no longer something that people will see necessarily as trivial. We're also looking at, at other things related to other factors that might relate to how people adhere to or don't adhere to the, the rules of social distancing. So we're trying to put together some, other papers from that data set, one that shows that people who have strong conservative political leanings, particularly social conservative political leanings, those individuals tend to be more boredom-prone. And one of the things about that relation is that um, a researcher in Essex University, Wynan Van Tilburg, talks about boredom as a meaning-seeking or meaning-making experience. When you're bored, you're lacking meaning and so you need to seek for meaning. And these strong ideological frameworks provide that meaning. And so the, those individuals tend to be more boredom prone. But the hope might have been, okay, if you get meaning from that structure, that framework of social conservatism, then maybe you'd be less likely to break the rules, but it turns out that they're more likely to. And so that's that's a little bit frustrating too. And we also, in you mentioned earlier, you know, the long list of things associated with boredom proneness that are maladaptive. So, we asked people about their alcohol intake, other drug intake, things like playing video games, these sorts of behaviors that will occupy your time, but ultimately might not be that adaptive. We also sort of thought, well, maybe if you do those things, you know, it's not adaptive for you to be drinking more alcohol, as an example, uh, but maybe you'd be less likely to break the rules. Again, not true. So, boredom prone people are engaging in more alcohol intake, more drug use, and they're breaking the rules more than others. And so, we're on the cusp of trying to publish that those two pieces, but uh, there's certainly a lot more that can be done. And, and as I understand it, um, the UK's just gone on another sort of lockdown. Places in Europe are on lockdown. We're about to go in lockdown, I think, fairly soon in in uh, Canada or place parts of Canada at least, and in you know the northern hemisphere too. We're going on lockdown and, and getting these uh, shorter amounts of daylight and colder weather and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think the challenges of responding well of boredom are only going to become harder
0: and it's but it's going to be you know as you say it's sort of gone up the priority list the awareness list and you know as we sort of said earlier it's not a matter of trying to eliminate boredom that that would be like saying let's let's eliminate pain you know it's, it's, it's just not something that can be done but do you think a greater understanding of it a sort of contextualization i mean through things such as your book can help us to to cope a little bit better with it than we than we already do
1: I do. I, and, and that's part of the hope about putting some of these ideas out there is that ultimately, and, and I think I said this earlier for myself personally, ultimately, I don't think you can outrun boredom or overcome boredom. And I don't think that you should necessarily want to. The signal is a useful one. It, it is helpful to have this signal that sort of says, you know what? You need to break what you're doing now and do something else or break from, I should say, what you're doing now and do something else. So the main thing I think that I find helpful personally, and I hope that others would too, is to point out another sort of thing about boredom that I think people have not really acknowledged, and that is that it is an agitating and restless experience. One of the more common myths that I have to debunk, particularly when I talk to to anyone from the public, is this myth that boredom equals laziness or that boredom equals apathy Apathy is just apathy. Apathy is just not wanting to do anything. Boredom is quite the opposite of that. Boredom is, um, as the, the, the Tolstoy quote is the one that I love the most, boredom is a desire for desires. You want something. You really do. Um, and that's why it's agitating, because you're not satisfying that want. So the main piece of advice that I hope is helpful to people is to say, just acknowledge that all of this restlessness and agitation is signaling that you're bored. You don't have to succumb to the restlessness. Take a deep breath. If you can sort of manage to stay calm and allow the restlessness and the agitation to subside or go away, then you can actually use the boredom signal for what it's intended to, and that is to say, okay, clearly what I'm doing now is not satisfying me. And you can do then a number of different things. You can say, okay, why is it not satisfying me? Could I change the way I'm doing it or change the way I'm thinking about it to maybe have it satisfy me? The examples we give there come from work with the with, uh, um, assembly line workers. You know, they're doing fairly monotonous kind of work. It's repetitive, it's long, and yet if they do things like challenge themselves to beat their personal best from ev- any given hour in the day, then they've taken a monotonous repetitive job and turned it into a personal challenge, and now it's not quite so boring. Th- that's just one example of reframing what you're doing so that it's more meaningful to you and then presumably less boring. Or you could reflect on it and say, okay, it's clearly not satisfying me. I'll come back to it, perhaps, but now I'm going to choose something else. And the other thing about that that choosing, that act of choosing that's important to me is I think sometimes when you tell people boredom is a call to action, you need to choose goals that matter to you, that are important to you, I think people sort of immediately start to think on a grand scale, and that's not what's needed. You not You can't expect of yourself that every time that you get bored, you're going to sort of launch into curing cancer or you're going to you're going to you know try and solve middle east peace you, you, you can't take on massive things at every moment that you get bored small goals are just as useful just as helpful just as valuable as the bigger goals so I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't think about your larger life goals but you shouldn't pressure yourself to always think about those one of the examples for me personally which if you'd asked my 20 year old self this he would have scoffed at you. But I find that in in the summer months, at least, I find it really rewarding to weed the garden. It's monotonous, but you see progress. You you see the the garden go from an overgrown thing to a a neat, nice looking thing. And that progress was at your hands. You, You did it. Right. And so it's not solving any world crisis or big problem. It's not groundbreaking. It's not something that, and and you also know as you're doing it, you're going to have to do it in a month's time anyway. <laughs> so there's lots about that action that you could look at from the outside and say, it's kind of meaningless, but it's not, right? Because it springs from my desire to make a nice looking garden. It has that sort of constant feedback where you see yourself making progress and the progress and the achievement at the, and the outcome at the end of it is quite obviously from your hands, from your work, your toil. So you know, I think calming down, trying to reframe what you're doing, choosing goals, but being careful that the choice of those goals is realistic. And and this is particularly important in the pandemic. Those goals have to be realistic because we have so many constraints.
0: James, the very last thing I want to ask you today, I want to go back to the technology question, because it seems to me such a, an important one. You know, I know that there have been predictions about epidemics of boredom for, for decades. So, you know, that maybe it's one of those things that sort of, you know, culture keeps worrying about. But I wondered, is it the case that there's something about technology that is qualitatively different? Because it seems to me, you know, perhaps when you and I were young, if we felt boredom, we'd go out and play football, or we'd draw a picture, or we'd pick up a guitar. Or we'd probably engage, you know, actively express some sort of agency, or our parents would sort of push us to do that. Now you can have this sort of let's call a sort of soft addiction to technology, you you can be sort of hooked on the sort of analgesic effect, which is not quite the same as sort of pure boredom of sort of staring at the walls of your bedroom and thinking, okay, I'm going to go out to play, but might be just enough to suppress the boredom but not prompt you to take some action. So is that is that just a, a worry of someone in their 50s, you know, sort of thinking, well, it was different when I was young? Or do you think there might be something qualitatively different about what technology does to suppress the, the sort of pang of boredom that might be the goad to action
1: it's a great question and i, I sort of think the, the answer is yes maybe <laughs> <laughs> um because i do worry like you you do that you know perhaps it's just my generation that that sort of um thinks and every generation does this they look down on the youth and say you know, in my day, it was, it, it, was, it was both harder and better somehow, right? <laughs> um, and and yeah. so I don't, I don't want to do that. And the, the other thing I don't want to do is to sort of suggest that there aren't absolutely wonderful, fantastic things that we get from technology. You and I are communicating across the pond here on a system that a, a, allows us to converse like we we're in the same room. That's not possible without technology, right? And, and, and so it connects us in fantastic ways. And I think it can connect us in creative ways too. So I don't do anything on TikTok, and there's not not ever likely to. But I watch my son interact with that, and sometimes it can be passive. I'm watching other people's TikToks, and I'm just I'm getting amusement and entertainment out of it, but I'm not I'm being passive. And sometimes it's creative. He's making his own, right? Um, and and you know things like the, there was a a show on in the UK. I've forgotten the name of it now, but a friend of mine showed me some clips of it where people were doing kitchen Olympics or something, kitchen Olympic tasks, <laughs> and they f- filming them and putting them on, you know, very creative <laughs> and very funny and really quite enjoyable. And the the, the UK uh, sports broadcaster who did a an e- year-end review with his dogs, I mean, you know, that kind of use of technology is quite funny and creative and engaging. And and so that's the that's the counterpoint to, but, yes, they can act as pacifiers for boredom. And at any time that we're just pacifying boredom, whether it be through our phones or through gambling or drug and alcohol use, we're not listening properly to what the signal is trying to tell us. And eventually, you're going to have to listen. You're going to have to face those situations that are leading you to feel boredom so that you can reckon with them and say, okay, why am I experiencing boredom in these particular circumstances and what's my best path out of it, not just my most passive path, you know, you've read the book, you will have seen the quote from a, a sociologist called Oren Clapp and he talked about being bombarded by technology, sort of the notion of it's like trying to drink water from a fire hose. There's so much information coming on at you at once that how do you separate signal from noise? And the thing I like about that quote from Oren Clapp is that it was in 1986 and he was worrying about things like pages and ghetto blasters and, and Sony Walkmans and such. You, know, you, you, I, I don't, I think that Oren is dead now. But you can imagine sort of transplanting him to 2020 and saying, "Now look at this little thing that you can hold in your hands, and tell me whether or not you're still worried about this epidemic of boredom." It has the convenience. The the people who manufacture these things, the particularly the social media things, they're savvy. They know what they're doing. They know how to hook you in and addict you and, and keep you on there. So yes, I I do worry about those aspects of that of social media and our technology and i worry about them operating as pacifiers for boredom and then of course there's more than just boredom there's the things like fear of missing out the the anxieties particularly in teenagers that are associated with you know getting likes on social media so i don't think we should be hyperbolic about these kinds of things i don't think we should be worried about epidemics necessarily but i think we should be vigilant i think we should be doing the research to look at the associations between these things to try and say, well, are we seeing problems? And I think some of the research I know of suggests the answer to that is yes. And then what's our best way to deal with those problems? And there's less research on that at the moment, you know, other than just sort of switching off and getting off your social media periodically.
0: I was talking to James Dankert about Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom, co-authored with John D. Eastwood, which is currently available in hardback and as an audiobook or e-book from Harvard University Press. You can find out lots more about James and his research at his website, www.jamesdankert.com. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 70 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify, among others. And catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then... Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.